Hello and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angles on these different issues when they are appropriate. This week, I'm excited to welcome Garbus Iradian to Current Account. Garbus is the Chief Economist for the Middle East and North Africa region, which we call MENA, here at the Institute of International Finance. He covers a number of countries, as well as the oil markets. I wanted to invite Garbus to speak with me today for a few reasons. The first, and maybe most prominent, is that he just led an investor trip to Egypt, where, and we'll talk about that in pretty significant detail. But the other is that we really actually haven't had a conversation about the Middle East since I've been uh, working on current account. So I figure we would do a little bit of coverage of the region, going more specifically into Egypt, hit upon Lebanon, but at the same time, talking a little bit about oil markets, because oil is such an important aspect of the overall region. Anyway, first of all, let me welcome you, Garbus, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks. It's great to be here. So before we dive into what's going on in the MENA region and in Egypt specifically, I did want to start with the big picture. So let's talk about the oil markets. Um, you follow this very closely. Last year was kind of a weird year because of what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine. Oil markets spiked high, but then they came back down as the near the end of the year. So what is your overall view of oil markets and maybe a little more particularly with China reopening uh, after their COVID zero lockdown, is that going to change how we look at oil markets going forward? So before starting with uh, this year, we were on track last year with our projection of oil. In fact, in May of last year, we expected oil prices to average around $100. It came up 99.8. So we were on the spot. That was way off, Garbus. <laughs> no, exactly $100. And even at that time, we were expecting that oil prices will moderate to something around $85, which we kept it the same so far, $85 average for the whole year. Now, recent development, oil prices fluctuated uh, between 80 to 85, etc., but there are important uh, factors which will drive oil prices slightly higher. Now I have in mind to raise our oil projection, the average for the whole year to $90 for the following reasons. The shift from gas to oil continues, particularly in Europe, something in the range around 1 million barrel a day or slightly less for this year. You mentioned about China reopening. This is a major factor because now we're expecting the Chinese growth to accelerate from around 3% last year to something around 5, 5.2% for this year. This has implication on demand for oil by China. Last year, demand for oil for China declined. It was the first decline in several decades. For this year, we're expecting Chinese global demand for oil to increase by 700,000 barrels a day, so almost 0.7. And we're projecting overall 
increase in global demand for oil of about 1.6 million barrels a day. So more than two-thirds of that is coming from China, India, and other Asian economies, which continue to grow at a solid pace, something around 4 to 6%. Uh, let's say in case of India, it could be around 6%, China 5 and Thailand, Indonesia, and the rest of the Asian countries will continue growing at strong pace. So this is a major factor that the global demand for oil will be strong for this year because of China and other Asian economies. However, there was additional factor. I don't know if you have seen it in the news. Russia just announced that it will cut its oil production by 0.5 million barrels a day, which is 500,000 barrels a day. That represents about 5% of total uh, Russian production. This is in retaliation for the sanctions and cap on prices. This will start in March next uh, next month. So this could also tighten the supply of oil globally. Although it's a small portion, however, it has a, uh, an effect. And for these three factors, now we think that oil prices could be slightly higher. Although you have several non-OPEC suppliers increasing their production, including United States, Brazil, Canada, Norway, which will partly offset the reduction in oil by Russia and the OPEC Plus. As you know, on October 4th last year, OPEC Plus decided to reduce production by 2 million barrels a day. Effectively, in fact, it will be 1 million barrels a day. And this will continue till end of this year. So overall, we think that oil prices could be slightly higher for this year, about $90. So a number of factors there. And one one thing I wanted to say when you mentioned, uh, just a real quick clarification, um, you said that uh, OPEC said that they would cut $2 million per barrels uh, production, and but it really, in effect, is more closer to $1 million. The reason is, is because there's only so much production that they could actually do. question I want to get to is, how does this affect the Middle East region, particularly the oil exporters? So Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, a number of other large oil producing countries. Um, I assume that $100 a barrel, and if you're right, $90 a barrel in 2023 is pretty positive for them from an economic perspective, a balance, a payments perspective. But maybe that's not right. So how, how are they looking as they go into 2023? Yeah, in fact, uh, our calculations show that as long as oil prices stay above $75, most MENA oil exporters, which we have 10 countries, the six GCC countries, Algeria, Iraq, uh, Iran is a special case because of the sanctions, will continue performing very well. So overall, uh, they will have some surpluses in their current account in the balance of payment. The fiscal deficit will be small. In some cases, you will have large fiscal surpluses. And the reason for that, the fiscal break-even prices of oil, which balances their budget, has been declining over the past several years because of the fiscal consolidation or adjustment. 
particularly in Saudi Arabia, Oman, UAE, the fiscal break-even prices is uh, lower than $80 per barrel. So with oil prices remaining above $80, the outlook is favorable for these countries. Now, the main risk that I see if oil prices drops below $70 for a sustained period of time, they could face uh, difficulties, particularly in Bahrain, Oman, Iraq. However, in the other countries, they have enough financial buffers in the form of large public foreign assets, whether it's official reserves or sovereign wealth fund, which they can tap. So overall, the tightening of the global financial conditions, which is reflected in the GCC by higher interest rate, will be mitigated by higher oil prices. So these countries will continue the non-oil sector growing 2, 3, or 4%. Thank you very much. All right, I am going to switch this up a little bit and go move to North Africa and specifically to Egypt. So I know you just had led an investor trip to Egypt and had excellent meetings with officials and investors and private sector there. So want to kind of an update on that for the listeners. The reason we wanted to bring this up is not just because we had an investor trip, but because Egypt is going through a lot. I mean, so when Russia invaded Ukraine, this drove up both energy prices that we just kind of talked about a little bit and food prices and uh, Egypt is an importer. But on the other hand, Egypt has been a vulnerable country for a number of years. They got an IMF program, which Garbus will go through a little bit. And just again, what is an IMF program? The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, provides financing when a country is running into balance of payments problems. And in exchange for that financing, because they can't provide collateral, what they do instead is they, they do financial conditions. On the fiscal side, the monetary side, et cetera, I think Garbus can go through it a little bit better, but just to give a kind of a context. So Garbus, tell us about what you learned in Egypt and what you, how you see things moving along there. Before uh, highlighting the main elements of the IMF program, let me start uh, with the factors why Egypt economy deteriorated in the past uh, six months or so. I mean, one major reason, as you mentioned, is the war in Ukraine, which led to higher food prices and investors' uh, caution. They pulled out almost 20 billion from the Egyptian market. So non-resident holding of Egyptian treasury bills amounted to something around 25 billion before the war in Ukraine. 20 billion went out of the country. So this, this had major implication on the foreign exchange availability in Egypt. Another factor is that the Egyptian economy was overheating. It was growing at much higher rate than its potential. Last fiscal year, the growth rate was 6.6% as compared to a potential growth of 4%. So this also contributed to the high inflation, which in January last month, it reached around 25%. Having said that, with depleting of the foreign assets in Egypt, 
There has been an agreement with the IMF supported adjustment program. The amount provided by the IMF is relatively small. Uh, it's three billion. How, however, it uh, encourages other donors like the GCC and other international organization, World Bank. So the financing gap is almost 17 billion. We have some doubt that whether this 17 billion over three, four years will be available. I will uh, highlight that later. Now, the main three elements of the program is move permanently to a flexible exchange rate. The exchange rate in Egypt was misaligned and it was managed by the central bank. So the condition now is to move to a more flexible exchange rate, which the authorities have done it. Another thing is that they tightened monetary policy almost by 800 basis points. The interest rate went up. Uh, the third element is fiscal consolidation. There are some signs that revenues are increasing and there is rationalization of some of the spending. And the fourth element is structural reform, which aims at encouraging the private sector as the main engine of growth in Egypt. For many decades, almost since 1960, for, uh, for almost six decades, the state involvement has been very heavy, particularly by the military establishment. So one of the major structural conditions by the IMF is a clear guideline, explicit commitment by the authorities to privatize some of the state-owned enterprises, particularly the ones owned by the military establishment. This has major implications because in the financing gap, 8 billion is expected to come from GCC countries, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait, etc. And this money will come in the form of buying some of the state enterprises, so equity participation in major state-owned companies or sectors which are dominated by the military establishment. That would be very difficult. In fact, recently there has been some rumors that uh, tensions escalated between Saudi Arabia and Egypt because Saudi Arabia highlighted the point that we will help you if you allow us to buy some of your state-owned enterprises. All right. That was very clear. There was a lot of issues there. Some of them are they're not, it's not that it's complicated. It's just very politically difficult to do. I mean, uh, you mentioned yes. the idea of moving towards a flexible exchange rate. That's not an easy thing for a government to do. And obviously, the Egyptian government is trying to take that on. At the same time, I think you were very clear that the structural reform aspect is something that's important not only to probably make this program work in Egypt, but also it's important to some of the investors. You mentioned Saudi Arabia, but just I'm sure there's, there's other investors that are interested, in it, but they want a, probably a more efficient system in Egypt. And it kind of leads me towards a point, which is, I think this is like the third or fourth IMF program over the last few years in Egypt. The IMF is supposed to provide temporary financing to help on a balance of payments problem. On the theory, of course, that that be temporary so that they can go forward after that uh, without IMF financing. 
is there a little bit of uh, what's the saying? Um, hope over experience here, which is we're hoping that things will change and to put Egypt on a better position. But experience suggests that we may just be le- going towards another program in, from the IMF that actually is not overall successful. Well, the risks are high for reasons I mentioned, uh, the structural uh, reforms. But if we compare it uh, with uh, previous uh, programs, uh, there has been major move on the exchange rate. I mean, the exchange rate depreciated almost by 40% in the past three months. And we see some flexibility in the exchange rate of fiscal consolidation also. And also in the IMF program, there is a structural benchmark, concrete steps when certain enterprises will be privatized or open to participation by uh, foreign companies or foreign countries. So there there is a specific table uh, and timeline for this privatization. However, the doubt remains whether this will be implemented. I can give it uh, something around 50% chance on the structural issue. It's a very politically sensitive issue in Egypt. When you have a country where for almost 60 years, the military establishment dominated the economy, it's hard to give it up within a short period of time. So it will be very gradual. Okay, th- thank you very much. I think you put it very well, which is they're they're making some tough decisions, but there may be some that may be just too tough. But it was it's an interesting some feedback that you received on your latest trip. Before we wrap up today, I did want to talk about a country I know you've done a lot of work on over the last well, probably many many years, but on the last few years that I I've been watching, which is on Lebanon. Lebanon has is sometimes called a failing state. I don't know if that's fair or not, but clearly over the last few years, the economy is contracting, poverty is increasing, financial sector has has come under duress. Um, There have been problems on their uh, dealing with their debt. And uh, Lebanon has been speaking to the IMF about all of these issues for a number of years, but it's been very difficult. Can you just give us maybe a little bit of an update on what's happening with Lebanon? Sure. Yes, in fact, I would label Lebanon a failing state because for almost three years since the crisis started, nothing has been done by the authorities to start with the reform process. So the economy contracted almost by 45% in real GDP grade cumulative over the past three, four years. And this continues. The exchange rate in the black market now is around 65,000 for the dollar, while before the crisis, it was 1,500. Salaries in Lebanon, minimum salaries, dropped from $600 to $50. Poverty increased to over 80%, according to United Nations figures. Unemployment, almost half of the population are unemployed. The only hope or financial assistance which is coming is from the Lebanese diaspora living abroad, where you have at least 8 million Lebanese abroad, of which large portion are in GCCC countries, and they send almost $8, 9000000000 billion every year 
to their relatives in Lebanon. That accounts for almost one-third of the size of the economy. Now, last year, there has been an agreement with the IMF on a, uh, at the staff level, and there were prior action. In fact, the agreement happened almost one year ago in uh, March of 2022. There were eight prior actions before going to the board that the authorities had to implement them, including unification of the multiple exchange rates, completing the audit of the central bank and commercial banks. None of these prior actions have been implemented. On top of that, you have this political paralysis in the country. Last year, in October, the term of the presidency expired, and now the country is without president and without functioning government. So the institutions are falling apart. You don't have functioning government, you don't have a president, and the prospect of electing a new president are deemed at least for the next few months. So I'm very pessimistic about the situation. Hopefully, by maybe April or May, they can elect a new president, form a consensus government, and start with the reforms highlighted by the IMF. All right. Thank you very much, Garbus, and thanks for all of this. I think it basically demonstrates that you have what is clearly a fascinating set of countries and uh, policy areas and analysis that you have to cover. And it kind of runs the gamut of all everything from something that you just described as a failing state to countries that are obviously doing fairly well, given uh, their oil exporting uh, countries and, and everything in between. And of course, all the work that you've just recently done, you and your team on Egypt has been terrific. So again, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Clay. It's a pleasure. So now it's time for my three, two, one, which is the three main takeaways from my conversation with Garbus, two things that I'm looking forward to that are related and one sports fact. In terms of my three takeaways, first, Garbus mentioned that oil, while it has been slightly depressed from an oil price perspective over the last few months, it probably will go up somewhat this year. And that's because you have higher demand coming for out of China. But you also have cuts in supply. We saw a little bit of that from OPEC last fall, and we are expecting to see it from production cuts from Russia starting in March. Next, country of Egypt is a tough case because a country where they have been overcome by external forces, as well as some of their own internal problems, but external forces that came from the Russia-Ukraine situation they're trying to make some very, very difficult decisions on terms of their conditions so that they can get the financing that they need in order to overcome their balance of payments problem. The issue will be is whether or not some of those changes are too difficult, as Garbus outlined, particularly in terms of getting the state out of the economy. And last is, I guess, the sad story of what's happening in Lebanon. It's prolonged inaction by the authorities has worsened economic conditions and deepened the financial crisis. It's hard to say that anything I just heard from Garbus is optimistic. All that said, we still continue to have hope for Lebanon, largely built on a very talented populace, a banking system with excellent bankers, and hope that they can overcome some of the political difficulties 
to actually begin to implement reforms and get their country on a much better track. The two things I'm looking forward to first is related to the point about Russian production. Will they actually make the move in March to cut production or not? And there's debate about whether this will happen, given that uh, Russia is fairly dependent on uh, energy exports for its budget and for its balance of payments. And next, can Egypt stay on this IMF program? Can it continue to allow for its exchange rate to be more flexible? Can it continue to get its fiscal and monetary policy house in order? And can it at least make some movement on some of those structural reforms? My one sports fact this week is about the accomplishments of an individual. And that individual is LeBron James. He is uh, the famous basketball player here in the United States. This week, he passed a record that most people thought might not be surpassable, which is the all-time scoring record of 38,387 points that his predecessor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, had set a long time ago. Now, just to put this into perspective, it is an amazing scoring accomplishment over a very long period of time. In LeBron James's case, he had to average 27 points a game for the last 20 years in order to make it there. For those of you that don't follow basketball, anybody who makes 20 points a game at the professional level is usually considered basically an all-star. So he's been doing 27 points a game for 20 years. I thought there was a few interesting aspects of this. LeBron James is, first of all, not just an amazing individual player and scorer. He's a four-time NBA champion, a four-time MVP of the league. He is clearly one of probably the two greatest basketball players to ever play. The other one is Michael Jordan. The Economist podcast always does a statistic of the week. So I, there is a statistic of the week that's interesting to this, which is 38. And here's why. LeBron James is 38 years old. The scoring record set by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was 38 years ago. He scored 38 points in this game in order to beat the record. And when he beat the record, it was 38,388 points overall. And he did it on the 38th day of this calendar year. So maybe it's not the statistic of the week. Maybe it's about numerology. And on this one, I don't know what 38 means, but right now it seems like it means LeBron James is the king. My last point is some words that actually come from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the man whose record he beat. And he said this after LeBron James beat it. When some people thought Kareem will be mad about this or upset because he was such a competitive person, instead he said, whenever a sports record is broken, it's a time for celebration. It means someone has pushed the boundaries of what we thought was possible to a whole new level. And when one person climbs higher than the last person, we all feel like we are capable of doing more. I think that sums it up very well. Thank you, Kareem Abdul-Jubar, and thank you, LeBron James. And thank all of you, for that's going to be a wrap-up for this week of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. And we can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. I want to thank Garbus again for his insights today. 
And all of our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and goodbye.